Hey, queer friends, are you ready to be inspired? Welcome to Season 5 of Coming Out and Beyond, a podcast that shares stories from the LGBTQIA community. Here's your host, Anne-Marie Zanzel. Hi, this is Anne-Marie Zanzel, and welcome back to another episode of Coming Out and Beyond, LGBTQIA plus stories. And I'm so excited to welcome to the show today, author Tate Barkley. Tate is a native of Statesville, North Carolina, and he struggled with feelings of shame, of living in poverty, of alcoholism and addiction, and of being a closeted gay man. With more than 20 years in recovery, Tate uses his journey to write and speak about shame, self-acceptance, mental wellness, resilience, personal integrity, and ethics. Tate is a practicing attorney, speaker, author, and educator living in Houston, Texas with his husband of six years, Anson, and their dog, Emerson. Tate is the author of Sunday Dinners, Moonshine, and Men. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Emory. I'm excited to be here. Uh, I am excited to talk to you. I love talking to authors. That's probably my one of my most favorite things to do. And so it sounds like your book is a little autobiographical. Is that true? It is. That's right. It, it, people right. ask me if it's a memoir, and I say, well, it's a memoir about my relationship with my dad, who was a very impactful person, you know, in my life, and and um, so. And in our our lives, our drinking, my struggle of being gay is kind of the the, the wrestling match that goes on through so much of of that book. And uh, anyway, so yeah, it's 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 a it's a tale of of, of two men struggling with a lot of the same things. Mm-hmm. So my first question I ask, and this is my goodness, a loaded one with for you is: Tell me your story, Tate. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Uh, uh, well, you know, it's like, a, you know, there's a there's a three minute version and a three and a half hour version. So how about the three minute version? <laughs> how about how about a, a 10 minute version? <laughs> OK, <laughs> well, you know, it's like you shared with with uh, uh, our audience earlier that I, I was born in Statesville, North Carolina, and um, really outside of Statesville and what I call rural North Carolina. And um, so. It was a very conservative place, as as you might imagine, and uh, I um, came to life and, and grew up in a very uh, conservative town. Can I ask you where about Statesville is? Like, I, I sort of know North Carolina, so where where about in the state is it? If you go 42 miles north of Charlotte on Interstate 77, you'll find Statesville. It's right there. Okay, so yeah. it's pretty much very in the middle of... You bet. <laughs> it's, 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 yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's yeah. We we uh, it is Bible Belt, and uh, and and my uh, and my grandmothers would would let you know it. So um, my ex wife's partner comes from North Carolina in the same sort of area. So um, not my ex wife, my wife's ex partner. I'll <laughs> 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 yeah. we'll scratch that one. Yeah, scratch that out. That's an edit. <laughs> her her ex partner came from that same kind of area, and I know a lot about that. You know, and I was, you know, and I, uh, you know, I was born in 1965. So I began, you know, our life centered 
really around the church whenever I was little. It was family and church, and that's just how things went. And, you know, a, a week was you not only went to Sunday school on Sunday and church services, but you stayed after church, you know, for the covered dish social. You mm-hmm. always had prayer meeting on Wednesday night. And, of course, you always were calling on somebody who, you know, who was sick or whatever. My my grandmothers were very devoted to the church, but their their view of, of the religion was was I call it it's very Old Testament in its approach to things. And you I learned at a very early age when I, I saw how how people were viewed, that you were your sin. Whatever that sin was, that's what you were. And it it seemed like so much of the mercifulness and forgiveness that's talked about by Jesus, uh, you know, didn't seem to make it to the pulpits where I grew up. So were you a Southern Baptist? Uh, no, no, I was not a Southern Baptist. I was ARP Presbyterian, which was a, a little Southern branch of Presbyterian that broke mm-hmm. off from the main church. Um, well, because they didn't like the way they didn't want to change the hymns and they didn't like how progressive they were com- they were becoming in the early 40s. So uh, so they broke off into the Southern denomination of that. So it's okay. primarily that and one grandmother was Lutheran and the other one was Presbyterian. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So they also they also uh, that they didn't know the New Testament was written. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you what, I, we, you didn't hear a lot about it. But I'll tell you yeah. what, you got a lot of Leviticus. I can tell you that. And, oh. um, and <laughs> so, but 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 I, I I just share that. I mean, I love my grandmothers. Don't get me wrong. And, and I think no doubt that they there's no doubt they loved me. And, and that's kind of what the Sunday dinners means. Mm-hmm. In the book title, Sunday Dinners, Moonshine and Men, you know, that was my favorite time was I actually liked church until I began to realize that I I was different and, and the way I was different was considered an abomination. You know, I probably knew Anne-Marie fifth, mm-hmm. sixth grade that I was attracted to other guys and 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 I regularly heard about the the abomination that was homosexuality and how that was condemned and that was that was pretty much beat into you in uh, in, in those early days and and so I knew that I was different and I knew that that I didn't quite fit into the world that was being presented to me at the time and and it gave me a lot of fear um, you know but the Sunday dinners part when I was very young my father is is what I call a flim flam man he's very charismatic man very larger than life but very narcissistic I love him think he loved me but that's just who he was as a result he was always chasing some get rich scheme and it was very disruptive mm-hmm. so my favorite time was whenever I was safe with mainly my grandmother Kirkman Mm-hmm. And and she would always take us to church and we'd have Sunday dinner and I could help make Sunday dinner. And it was those good Southern Sunday dinners, you know, you know, fried cube steak and gravy and mashed potatoes and green beans with a big old scoop of bacon grease in them, you know, and, and all that, all that stuff that I loved anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a special time because I felt safe with her. And um, uh, as well, time. 
It makes a lot of sense. I grew up in a very chaotic home. I was Catholic. I was raised Catholic. And church, I like church. It provided a place of safety for me. I also went to Catholic school. Mm-hmm. So it provided a place of safety. And my home was, my home life was quite chaotic. So when I went to church, I knew what the rules were. I knew what was expected of me. And, um, I, and also I was in school there and I excelled at school. So I got a lot of praise for that and everything like that. So when I write about church, church, you know, and I was also sort of a groundbreaker. I was one of the like first girls ever be, I was allowed to serve on the altar um, when I was oh, like wow. 10, <laughs> 10 years old. You know, I always had a bent towards those things. So I understand about how church can play a role for a lot of us, especially those of us who grew up in the 50s, 60s, 70s, where it's sort of a place where you know, you would go and it would, it would provide normalization because a lot of us grew up with alcoholic parents because of World War II, you know? And so, and and so that's where we found safety. And so I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more because you you and I share that. My father was an alcoholic and, and, and I never knew him any other way, uh, frankly. And, and, and he died an alcoholic. So, and so, uh, it was chaotic and, and church was that safety. And plus, I always really liked the ritual of church mm-hmm. because, you know, you would do this and then you would do there was structure to it. At home, there was no structure. I never knew when we were going to have to pick up and go. Church had structure and I loved it. And and, you know, and of course, you know, my grandmothers were there, you know. Whichever church I was at at the time, they were with me, and I always liked being with them. So, mm-hmm. and I think you're right. And fortunately, my dad, as as he, I never saw my dad in a church except for at a funeral. Ever, he would drop me off at my grandmother's to take me to church, but he would never go. Mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, one of the reasons we eventually left North Carolina is because my dad said they were small minded. And he 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 picked us up and we came to Houston in 1977. And I remember him sitting me on the steps. We had some concrete steps outside our trailer, you know, in North Carolina. And he said, you know, Houston's booming, Bob. And I'm telling you, we're going to go to Houston and all dreams can come true there. Um, so we moved yet again. We had already moved about seven times by then. I was 12. And uh, when I was in fourth grade, I went to four different schools. So I I did not want to leave because that summer I had had my first kind of with my best friend. I had had my first relationship with um, with a guy, you know, if you could call it that. I mean, we were very young, but and I didn't want to leave him. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of heartbreaking for me to leave. But once we got to Houston, man, everything turned upside down. Um, I had never seen a place with so many people. Mm-hmm. And they were different. And many of them were different. Even then, I had never seen a Latino except for on TV. And uh, we got to Houston. They were, you know, it, it was a very uh, multicultural, even way back then, uh, with many ethnicities around. And I was fascinated by it. And uh, and I loved it. I loved it. But what followed me around is there were also a lot of incredibly looking guys. And what followed me around was this fact that this repression of who I was. And that's when I picked up my first drink was in Houston. There was a bayou that ran behind the apartment complex. And one of my buddies handed me a beer one night, Anne Marie, and I drank it. 
It was one of those Miller High Life, you know, the champagne of beers. Uh, and I drank the second one. And by the time I drank the second one, I mean, it was like the whole weight of the world had been lifted off of me. I caught my first beer buzz and I loved every second of it. And, you know, I chased that same buzz for another 21 years before I got sober. So when I was in seminary, um, I did a lot, a lot of the work I did in seminary was around um, addiction and um, probably working out my demons for my dad, who, by the way, stopped drinking when I was 18 and did a lot to repair everything, you know? Um, and I read a great book and it was called Thirst and it was God and the Alcoholic. It was written by a semin seminary professor. And what I read, it, it, it sounds exactly like what you described as the first time I did cocaine when I was like eight, 19 years old. Um, it was this moment where all of a sudden um, I felt whole and complete. Yeah. And in, in, and in this book, he talks about um, that addiction is actually a spiritual disease. And when, you know, and I know, you know, I'm sure you've done a lot of AA and stuff like that, but when it becomes ultimately your addiction becomes your higher power. Mm -hmm. And then you go for the rest of your life, the less of your relationship with your drug of choice, chasing that first high, because it never feels as good as the first high. Sure doesn't. It no. sure doesn't. Yeah. 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 You know, and, and, and to that point, it was, I, you know, I remember on that very night, I, there was a water pipe that ran across this bayou and I was always too scared to walk across it, thought I'd fall in the water. But that night I walked across it back and I mean, here I am buzzing, but I walked back and forth across it and I felt so courageous and so complete, like you said, so whole and I felt brave and it, I just knew that things would get easier. And, and then I focused once I had experienced that, so much of the rest of my life, I was focused on trying to recapture that high, yeah. and and that was that was a, a goal of mine, you know. Mm -hmm. So, are you in the process of coming out later in life? Are you feeling isolated or lost, cut off from friends and family, or just trying to figure out what is the next step for you? Well, I have a wonderful coaching program called Lotus Group Coaching. It is for people who are female identifying, cis or trans, or non-binary folks comfortable in this, those spaces. And we provide emotional, spiritual, and intellectual support for people who are in the process of coming out later in life. We discuss many things in our community, but what's most important is that you have a community, a community of others who understand. Each one of the coaches in the program have come out later in life, and everybody who is a member of our program is somewhere in the process. So if you are seeking community and you want a soft place to land, go to my website, amoryzanzel.com, and book a connection call. We would love to talk to you. Mm -hmm. So how did this, so do you now view your addiction um, as a way for you to suppress your queerness? My addiction was the way that I, 
Well, unquestionably, I suppressed my queerness with addiction for most of my adult life. Mm -hmm. I got sober when I was 33. And I was 29 before I actually came out. And by the time I started gingerly coming out as a gay man, um, I was so far along in my addiction, in my alcoholism and drug use that, you know, everything was really, really blurred at that point in time. Mm -hmm. And I had real issues with being gay. I, I didn't want to be gay. I did not want to be a gay man. I didn't want to be queer because... I wanted to be a, a guy's guy. I wanted to, to you know, I'll, I'll never forget. I remember we were watching a news clip about the San Francisco um, Gay Pride Parade way back in the late 70s. And I remember my dad just kicking me and saying, Bubba, I better never. And I knew exactly what he meant by that. He didn't have to complete the sentiment. And, and I didn't want to be that queer. I didn't want to be that fairy. I didn't want to be that fag. I didn't want to be that person. Sorry for the, the language, but that was what was in my head. I was so afraid of being labeled that. And, 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 and as such, I struggled to accept who I was. Mm -hmm. When I finally started gingerly coming out to a few people, it really wasn't I, I hate to say this, but it's the truth. It really wasn't to come out as a proud gay man. It was really because I couldn't repress my sexual urges anymore. Mm -hmm. And my alcohol was perfect. My addictions were perfect because once I decided that I was going to engage, uh, it made me brave enough to go into the clubs. And, uh, you know, and that that was my view of being gay was going into the clubs and trying to have somebody to have sex with. And then just sort of disappearing in the haze of drunkenness and sex and and and, and, and drug use. Mm -hmm. When I got sober, Anne-Marie, when, when when the light of day finally hit and I'm in early sobriety, and I and I did get sober through AA, you know, and I I still in AA and still do the 12 steps. Mm -hmm. And and that same it, it hit me that the shame of being gay was still there. So, so, and, and, and even as young in the program as I was, I realized that until I could come into acceptance about who I was, I was not going to stay sober because my addiction was part and parcel of my shame mm -hmm. and my shame about being gay. They were, they, they were so inextricably linked that I had to kind of deal with them both. Well, and, and, I, and I find that the women I work with that come out later in life, they often come out, after they're in recovery, because it's when they're in recovery, they're able to deal with the shame that has been fostered or the guilt, the shame or the guilt that has been fostered on them by society, by religion, by all kinds of things. And then they are able to, you know, to accept themselves as who they are, as who they were beautifully created to be. <laughs> and, and that is so true. And I got to talk about and, and um I was lucky or blessed or however you want to look at it. When I got sober, I had had a, I managed to get through uh, University of Texas, Austin in law school and passed the Texas bar and then eventually created, had my own law practice up in North Texas. My drinking, and it turned out to be a very successful law practice that I subsequently lost due to my drinking. Mm -hmm. And I found myself broke, broke in. And back at my parents' house, when I finally made the decision, after um, thinking about suicide, 
to go to Hazelden. I went to Hazelden in Minnesota for treatment. And when I came home, I, it, it, I, there was nothing. I, I literally, my dad, whom we've talked about some, he picked me up at the airport drunk when I came back, classic dad. And he was like, oh, well, I sure hope they taught you how to drink, Bob. You're not an alcoholic. And I kind of heard that on the ride home. And then when we got to my mom and dad's house, my dad was a practicing alcoholic. And uh, then my sister, one of my baby sisters said, you know, you can't stay here. I didn't have any other place to go. I was living with my parents. Mm-hmm. And I went and lived with my sister, who had only been married for three months, uh, to get on my feet and to start recovery. And it was really a blessing. But when I left her house, I was still afraid to be by myself. So I moved in basically in a duplex with my best friend from high school. Mm-hmm. And she fortuitously was three blocks from the Lambda Center, which was a, a club devoted to groups in 12-step recovery in the gay community. In the, um, so I got lucky that way. So as I started literally working through recovery and my alcoholism, I was around other queer people who mm-hmm. were doing the same thing, many of whom had accepted themselves as queer, but had still struggled with alcoholism. And I I got to start all over again, Anne-Marie, and be a grown, start learning how to be a grown-up, you know, with these folks. And it was, it was a really, really golden time for me. I was still broke, but I had never, those first two or three years of sobriety worked in the program with, with other queer people who were struggling. We all had, we all had our secrets. And, you know, I learned when you hide, and when you have secrets, it's it's like this this drip drip of acid on your essence as a as a human being as as a and and until you get it out of there and get this and get the secrets out and share them and expose them for what they are, which is bullshit. My shame about being gay was just both pardon the language, but it's just bullshit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I had to just work through it though. I and I had and 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 anyway, there's. I could go on and on and on about recovery and, and the, but for me coming out and getting sober, we're the one in the same experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, what I find very fascinating is that I don't read Jesus. So I'm going to say something heretical. I don't believe Jesus died for my sins. Mm-hmm. Never have. But I do think that Jesus's story is a lot, like many of the religious teachers of birth, die, birth, life, death, rebirth. Right. And, and when I heard you said you were 33, it sort of made me smile because, if you know, as a former churchgoer, you know, that was the age of Jesus's death. Yep. And, <laughs> and, and I think it's really interesting is that you had to die to a sense of self of your conditioning of who your mom and dad and you, you haven't mentioned your mother, which I think is really interesting. We can talk about that later. Um, your mom and your dad told you to be, to be. you had to die to that sense of self mm-hmm. or you could um, accept who you were created to be. Yeah. And, 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 and that is very true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a, there was a, there were metrics that were given to me as a young man. You know, and that is, you know, you played football, you went hunting, you, of course, dated girls, and that's what you had to do. 
And, you know, you didn't cry. You had to fight if you were pissed off and somebody, you know, did you wrong. There was that kind of hyper-masculine myth that was laid out there for me in that to, to conduct myself accordingly. And uh, from a very young age, it made me very uncomfortable. And, and, and I never under, it wasn't until I really started grappling with the fact that I was, that, that I was the gay man, that, 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 that I realized, you know, what it was and, mm-hmm. and, and it had been beat in my head that, you know, gay men are, they're effeminate, they're this, they're that, they're all these things, but, you know, that's not been my experience. Our no, community, our community is so vast and very wonderfully diverse. It's so diverse. Yes, there are people that are flamboyantly lesbian and flamboyantly gay and flamboyantly trans, but there's also people that are just living their lives, and it really has more to do with personality as yeah. they are as people. Um, so it is an incredibly diverse and rich community, and um, sometimes you know. You know, my wife has been out since 1985, so we're both 60. Um, she's well, she's a year older than me, and um, you know, she she would say that back in the day when she would go to Pensacola, she, she would go to Pensacola. She's a Southerner too. She grew up in Nashville. Um, that she would go to Pensacola, and she goes. The news crews always looked for the most flamboyantly gay person there to almost perpetuate a stereotype of what somebody was gay was. And she goes, the funny thing is, is Pensacola is where the air, where the military base is. So half the people there were in the don't ask, don't tell area. (laughs) So like nobody wanted to talk to any type of reporter or anything like that. But there, you know, that's often what, you know, heteronormativity does. They, they find the things that are most different from, um, most different from them and that's what they lift up as the example for all and I love that part of our community it's one of my favorite parts but it's almost it's 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 very interesting how they do things and they still do it today they still you're you're right and they and they still do and 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 the stereotypical representations of the queer community you know that they 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 survive to this day you know, I think that, you know, fortunately, maybe it's getting a little better, but, you know, well, we're stereotypes so- are there for a reason yeah. because, because people are like that. You know, yeah. that's why we have stereotypes. Yeah. So tell me, tell me about your book. Okay. Well, you know, my book was really a people I, I've been asked, you know, why, why did you write it? And I didn't really start off to write a book in Marie. I, my dad died in 2012. And I had what I what we what you've learned probably so far a very complicated and tumultuous relationship with my dad, and I was still dealing with a lot of those issues. And I did not come out to my dad until his final illness. I mean, I carried that that with me, and uh, and and you know, I'm from the recovery uh, tradition. So when something bugs me, you're right. So, and that's what I did, you know, a year after dad's death, there were things that still bugged me. And so I was writing and I was rather old school and I wrote it and I said, Oh my God, my, I have this chicken scratch. And I said, let me dictate this. So I dictated it and I, and I gave it to our transcriptionist at work and it was, uh, it was transcribed and I just was taking a look at it. I had no intention of doing anything with it other than, you know, trying to trying to write out my feelings and 
I looked at it and I just put it aside for three or four months because I got busy with work. And um, then I had a knock on my door, like I said, about three or four months later and the person who had transcribed it, she said, do you have any more dis- dictation for me? And I said, well, about what do you mean? I, and she says, you know, your book. And I said, what book? And she said, the book you're writing about you and your dad. And I thought she and, and she said, I, I said, that wasn't really what I was doing. You know, I kind of smiled and she says, well, I want to know how it ends. So that's got me to <laughs> that got me to thinking. I said, well, let me maybe I'll just keep writing. And then that's how Sunday Dinner's Moonshine and Men came about. And um, and it and it and it chronicles, you know, my life and of course my relationship with dad and 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 really my drinking and then my struggle with coming out and then my acceptance later and then trying to reconcile as best I could, you know, all of this with my dad later. And you know, when I was talking to some folks, you know, they were like, you know, there's a lot of books on coming out and a lot of books on getting sober, but you know, I think we've all had a complicated relationship with a parent and to to sort of mix that in with this relationship, you know, I'd like to think that it's, it, it, it gave me an opportunity to maybe do a, something a little different with, with, with those issues. And, and, and I'd like to think that we've done it. Um, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, my mom and my, you know, uh, I didn't even honestly, I'm going to say, Tate, I didn't know if she was alive or not. Yeah. We're talking about your grandmas. You were talking about your dad. Mm -hmm. And then I, and then you mentioned something about when you moved to Houston that your mother went and I was like, Oh, his mom was still alive. So I'm very curious about that because like, where does she fall in all of this? um, You know, my mom is, you know, I, I was, I, I, my mom is one of those people that I think does love me unconditionally. And she was with me through all of that. And, and the, my dad could be certainly emotionally abusive, but he could also be physically abusive. Amory and mom took the bulk of that. Now we kids got some of it, but mom took the bulk of it. And her job was really keeping the peace and trying to keep the peace and him stable and us over here. And, and I think for a lot of years, you know, I adore my mom. And in writing this book made me realize what a wonderful and special woman she is. Um, for a lot of years, I think I had a resentment because mom was the person keeping the peace. And I can't tell you how many times I just wanted to get in dad's face and just hit him. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to take up for us. I wanted to stop this insanity that he seemed to perpetuate on all of us all the time. And I, and I kind of, I'll be honest, I kind of resented mom because she would never let me do it. She would never let me stand up to him because I now as an adult, I understand why that conflict, God knows what would come of it, you know, and, and, and uh, just keeping the peace. And uh, I struggled with that. Well, as an adult child of an alcoholic myself, my mother was the one that sort of held things together. And I had that anger. You know, we always get angry at the safe parent, right? Yeah, right. Because we know they're not going to hurt us. Right. But we always get angry at the safe. So my my relationship with my mother was very tumultuous throughout my life. And um, my relationship with my dad is a lot, was much more peaceful. And also too, he really did like made amends. And I, so I have no heart, like, yeah, my childhood sucked, but 
you know, from 1820 on, he was he was fine and made a real lot of amends and was a beloved grandfather by my children. Um, but, um, you know, I think that a lot of adult children of alcoholics, often the parent that is the safe one, the parent that was there all the time gets the brunt of our, yeah. our anger and our feelings because we know they won't abandon that's exactly right. And that's how it was with my mom. And I think with my, I had three younger sisters also. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think they probably said, why don't you just leave him to my mom a million times? Mm-hmm. And she never did. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I don't, you know, I, I, I just know mom didn't think that she could make it with four kids with, mm-hmm. without him. And well, it's also a different time. And, and also yeah. too, I only like, for example, work with women coming out later in life because I have to go through the layer of what the, the church has done to women <laughs> before I can even get to our queerness. Yeah. And so um, a lot of times your mom received all those messages that you received. Mm-hmm. And if you come from an evangelical conservative tradition as a woman, your job is to keep your family together and make your husband happy. That is your job. And so just like we bought into the messages about, you know, sexuality, your mom bought into some messages about what you're supposed to do. And, and until you're like, I do feel like being queer or being gay is a gift because I didn't come out till 50. So I'm like way after you. And, um, I think that it's a real gift because it ha- I, I really did look through the world in a very heteronormative lens. And then when I came out, my lens changed. And mm-hmm. the way I look at the entire world is a lot different than it did. Even though I considered myself progressive and a feminist and all that before I came out, um, you know, my lens has changed completely, you know. And so, like, I'm able to, like, have so much more compassion for my parents because they struggled under the same systems that I had to navigate to find myself. And that's absolutely true. And Anne-Marie, you, 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 you say something that I I totally agree with a couple of things, how lucky we are to be queer because of the perspective that we can bring to people. What a gift we have in being able to help others because of our queer experiences and because of how we struggled. Mm -hmm. And and I have to tell you, and I say this sometimes too. And I said, you know, I was just, <laughs> I was just telling my law, I literally just telling my law partner earlier today. I said, you know, I just wish everybody was an alcoholic and addict and in recovery because you know the benefits we get to have <laughs> in twelve step groups. Absolutely. You really do. I've done a lot of Al-Anon, so you do get a lot of benefits from it. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you just walk into a support structure that understands, that listens, that is, that is empathetic but yet will also challenge you on your own bs and uh, it's a real gift uh to have that and and to be recovering in queer is is i feel i almost feel special you know what i you know what i mean it's like oh my goodness and i love working with other people because the ability to empathize and to understand i think is 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 very strong because the damage that, you know, for many of us, um, as, as you've referenced, that we did to ourselves by having to live through that heteronormative lens for so long mm-hmm. and thinking of that as literally the gospel, uh, I, I, I think is, is it, it just kind of helps. It, it, it helps us help others. And I think that's the most important thing we can do. 
I do. Um, let me ask you. So you wrote this book because you were still trying to untangle the re- very complicated relationship with your dad. Did it help? Yeah. Well, I can and tell you. How did it help? Yeah, I can tell you unequivocally that by the by the time I concluded the process that was writing this book. It is without doubt. And I think what I was feeling, Anne-Marie, when I first started that writing so long ago was I had not forgiven my dad. And and it was and it was depressing me. And it was like this albatross around my neck. And and I had and I knew from my recovery, I knew that that I could not that my sobriety would never be faced and would never be safe unless I forgave the resentment and uh, that I was holding on to. And the one with my dad was deep. So was the one with my mom. Mm-hmm. But I, I had worked through that much easier, mm-hmm. you know, I think, than the one with my dad. Mm-hmm. And I can honestly say by the time I completed this book, by the time it was done, I had forgiven dad. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was as if this 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 great weight had been lifted off me. and. So that was the greatest gift to me from this is that forgiveness. And and I honestly, Anne-Marie, I didn't realize how much that resentment toward dad had been holding me back and mm-hmm. and, and 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 impairing my sense of wholeness uh mm-hmm. until I, I was able to get this book done. And um and and it's and it's been been, been a wonderful experience, you know. Who should read your book? Pardon? Who should read your book? Oh, I have to tell you. I, I think that, <laughs> that um, I think any. Yeah. I haven't read it yet, but I will yeah. read it. Yeah, I think anyone that is struggling with 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 who they are, perhaps with their sexual orientation or or their sense of self, should read the book. And um, I I would like to think that parents should read this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the messages that I certainly received as a kid and as a young man, I'm not, I recognize now I can't blame my parents. They were delivering to me what they had been taught mm-hmm. and uh, what I, uh, they thought was right. And so, but I think that it would really benefit a lot of parents to read it, you know, because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, somebody asked me once, they said, well, if you're mom and dad would have come to you when you were 15 or 16 because my mom when i came out to her said that you know we talked about you might be gay when you were 16 like your parents knew yeah and 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 if what if they would have come to you when you were 16 and said you know we don't know but if you are gay we still love you and i probably still would have denied it you know but if I would have known that that acceptance had been there and that love was going to be there, I it, it could have been different. I mean, I don't know that to be the case, but I got to tell you, I sure would have loved that. It, it, it would have made things easier. Mm-hmm. And I like to think when parents offer up that unconditional love and willingness to listen and to learn, it, it is very meaningful to a child. Uh, and, and I would have liked, that would have been great. 
I would love for you to go back and listen to my interview with John Silvic because he wrote a book about, um, you know, helping your LGBTQ uh, uh, adolescent. And I think you would really appreciate that. And um, John's gay man and this is a psychologist and um, great episode. And, and I think that, um, like, I think back to my parents, this is the thing, you know, as a girl, sex was bad. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it just was bad. And so my mother was older when she had me. So she was what would they call a Baltimore school Catholic, Baltimore catechism. I mean, she was like she grew up in the 20s and 30s. And um, she uh, like like just sex, any sex outside of marriage was wrong. And so when I first slept with my first guy, when I was like 19 or 20, um, I had sex outside of marriage and it wasn't very great. But I just chalked it up because, oh, I just guess I must be guilty because I should be waited till I got married, you know. And so like and and untangling all of that really became my life's work. And when I had children, I sort of forgot about it for a really long time. And then it was like in my 40s when I became a minister is when I started to untangle all the stuff with sexuality. And so it was a really long process for me, but it's okay. Like, I mean, like I have no, I I have the, what I regret, I regret that I didn't have the experiences of being a young lesbian and falling in love and doing all those things when I was in my twenties, you know, and, you know, I was in my fifties before that happened, but I'm still very blessed and very happy that I was courageous enough to make all those changes that I needed to make to be able to live a life that feels right for me. You know, Anne-Marie, there's a tremendous bravery. I mean, you think about it, you fit into your 50s before you begin, you know, in truly embracing yourself. That 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 takes a bravery, you know, well, it, you uh, know above I, and beyond. <laughs> well, and it's so funny, too, because I was somebody like, so if someday we could talk offline, I could tell you all about the intricacies of the later in life community. For especially for women and men, I've worked with some men that have been in their 50s and come out and stuff like that. Um, but one of the things is I didn't even realize how brave I was. Yeah. So after, you know, because I was somebody that came like, so a lot of women that come out later in life often have something called a catalyst, meaning they have a relationship with somebody and they realize they're not as straight as they thought they were be. But I wasn't one of those women. I came out without having a relationship with a woman. And being like, yeah, I think I got to go. And my ex-husband, you know, I, he was very aware of everything. And I was like, I think I got to go explore this. And it was like something. And I had been a hospice chaplain for seven years before. So it was like this, this, um, I knew that people died when people were dying, they didn't regret the things they did. They regretted the things they didn't do. So I knew that if I, I needed to go and explore this part of myself because I didn't want to be on my deathbed saying I should have done that. Yeah. That's when that's it. I, I, I thank all the hundreds of hospice, thousands of hospice patients I saw over the years because they really taught me that, that life is to be explored and life is to be like, don't be afraid. You know, don't worry about all the ins and outs of everything. If something is truly calling you, whether it's your queerness or something else, you need to go and explore that. And as an older person now, totally get it. <laughs> you know, and it's so true. It's like, as as you shared earlier, I'm, I'm, I'm married to a wonderful man, Anson, and 
even as I came out and got sober, I really struggled with relationships. I had never really learned to be emotionally intimate and physically intimate with the same person. I mean, sex represented sex. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and that's what it was. And I was 47 before I had a relationship over three months. And God bless my husband. I mean, the patience that he has, you know, in in and I'll tell you, it's so wonderful now. You, you, if if we could have had this interview 10 years ago, and I would have told you, there's no way in heck I am resigned myself to I'm just gonna be alone. I'm not built for a relationship. Mm-hmm. But you know, I just I just had to get some sobriety in and some emotional maturity in from being sober before I was capable of holding a relationship. And that just so happened to be in my late forties when, when that happened. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I sometimes, you know, think it takes what it takes, but, 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 but he has given me that gift of exploring things I would never do. Oh, good God. I would have talk about curmudgeon. I would have been a curmudgeon. <laughs> almost immediately you know <laughs> hitting my 50s but I'm I'm not now and that's been that's really been the greatest gift of sobriety and the greatest gift of accepting being a proud queer person is is the people that I've met in our community and my husband mm-hmm. and meeting people like you I mean it's just it's mm-hmm. like me being here with you today is a gift and it's a gift oh, to be sober. I'm so excited. I'm going to order your book. <laughs> we had a little, I'm just going to tell the listeners, we had sure. a little communication problem. So I didn't uh, just, that has nothing to do with date, but we had a little bit of a communication problem about this call today. And so I didn't have an opportunity to read the book. And so now I'm like dying to go read it. So I'll go get that after I get off the call or you can send me one. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so Tate, did you have a coming out song? Mm, I do. Man in the Mirror. By mm-hmm. Michael Jackson. That was my coming out song. I uh, That came out in like 87, 88. And I had not come out yet. But when I finally started telling people that we, we had entered the era of CDs, we were out of cassettes and into CDs at, at this point in time. So we're talking 93-ish. So I bought, I, I bought that album, that CD, and I would play Michael Jackson's uh, Man in the Mirror over and over and over again. I, and I still play it whenever I'm feeling down and I'm coming to work. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll hit that in the stream selection and then, and then I'll just jam to man. in the. <laughs> That's like the song. Um, this is me from uh, greatest showman. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. That was really popular. And I'm also, you know, my wife jokes that um, there's a gay man dying to get out of <laughs> Broadway. I love yeah. Broadway. And so like we, my wife and I have a, a group of five guys that we're really good friends with. And one of them's her cousin and we call them the gay mafia. Yeah. And we text all the time and stuff like that. And like they, she doesn't get any of their Broadway references, but I get <laughs> I'm very proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> have you read any, what, what book or uh, movie or film that really changed your perspective on things? You, you know, I'll tell you the the one that changed my my perspective on things, and um, I was I had come out I had come out, and I was wrestling with this. But Saving Private Ryan is a military movie, and it's kind of a war movie. It is, but, a war movie. <laughs> you know, and yeah, it's a war movie. But the 
but the deep sense of loss of that mom, you know, when her sons had had died, mm-hmm. and and then watching these people make a sacrifice to bring her one remaining son home, mm-hmm. and I thought. If 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 people can be so brave to save one person, I can be brave enough to tell the truth. And the movie just hit me that way. It may not hit a lot of people that way, but it hit me that way. Mm-hmm. And and that I can at least be brave enough to be honest with those around me about who I am and what I am and make a, a sincere attempt to be the best possible person that I can be. And, and, and that movie just hit me that way. Mm-hmm. You were just at that point in your life when you saw that and you could really relate. To right. What saying. Yeah, I can see that. How do you describe your life today? I got to tell you, I describe my life as, as totally blessed in, in so many ways. In that I have a husband that I adore and that I love, a little dog that, that's a diva that dominates our life and our household that we both adore. I have friend. I have, I have friends that love and accept me. And, you know, I've, uh, and I'm honest, I guess that's really the truth. I'm honest, Anne Marie. And, and that's, that's what I love most about my life. And I'm not afraid of being honest anymore. And I'm really not afraid of what, you know, anyone thinks. Uh, mm-hmm. I have to speak the truth and my truth, and I can do it in a way where I'm uh, uh, that can help me and help others. And uh, so I, I, I'm very relaxed in my life now, and I don't know any other way to describe it well. I love that word, though, relaxed. Yeah, that's a great word. So Tate Barkley, Sunday Dinners, Moonshine and Men, where can people find this book? You can find the book, find it wherever books are sold. But of course, it's available on on uh, bookshop.org if you like to buy your books online from independent bookstores. It's available on Amazon if that's that's easier. And on Barnes & Noble, uh, powbooks.com, all those places. So in any bookstore, if they're not carrying it, they can order it for you. And do you do social at all? I do. I do. And uh, I'm at tate.barkley on Instagram. And I'm on Tate Barkley on face on Facebook, and it's Tate Barkley on LinkedIn. Those are the three that I use. Yeah, you we we do the same. I'm Amory Zanzel everywhere. I do the same. Yeah, exactly. You Tate, know, and, 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 I'm sorry. If, yeah, and if that's too much, you can go to just regular old TateBarkley.com, and you can find out every and it's all all right there, along with an excerpt from the book. If you'd like to read it before you buy it, there's an excerpt right there that you can read and see if it's for you. So I would love to thank you for such a great conversation today. I really enjoyed it a lot. I'm very excited to read your book. I hope it does wonders. (laughs) Thank you. You've been listening to Coming Out and Beyond, LGBTQIA plus stories with Anne-Marie Zanzel. New episodes of the Coming Out and Beyond podcast drop every other Friday. You can tune in at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and at annemariezandel.com. Be sure to hit subscribe when tuning in so you never miss an episode. And for more resources, articles, videos, and a free downloadable guide for coming out later in life, visit annemariezandel.com.